Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Adam Minahan here, sitting, coming from Ireland. We just got back from Ireland on our pilgrimage. It was a wonderful pilgrimage. Unfortunately, Dave is not here this evening. We are going to have a special guest fill in for Dave. So next week, we'll probably talk more about the pilgrimage, all the fun that we had, all the great sights we saw, the good drink we had, the good conversations. We had a hilarious, in fact, I'm going to tell this right now. Uh, we have Dr. Malosh from the Alcuin Institute as our guest. Great to be here. Yes. And uh, you, you're you a repeat guest. We talked about the Regensburg Address and the Incarnation a couple years ago. Um, and so we're here, we're sitting in the study, we're smoking a pipe. Malosh, here's the deal. In Ireland, pipe smoking is not a thing. It's a shame. It is. So I'm, in, I'm outside, I'm smoking my pipe outside of a pub as one does, and uh, a guy walks by and goes, I haven't seen somebody smoke a pipe in 20 years. Incredible. And so we were laughing about it. That night, we're outside after having a drink and I'm smoking my pipe. Uh, this old Irish guy comes up laughing and pointing at us and brings his wife over and says, come here, come here, come here. These guys are smoking pipe. I'm smoking a pipe. I haven't seen somebody smoke a pipe <laughs> in 20 years. And he said the exact same thing. They ended up getting a picture with us because uh, they thought it was just absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's just, just a shame. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a, a mark of you know, cultural decline, right? That all of a sudden, smoking a pipe, drinking outdoors is... Is something of um, you know the bygone era. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's terrible. So, Dr. Malosh, you are the president of the Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture here in the Diocese of Tulsa. Correct. Uh, it started about four years ago, mm-hmm. and it's a very unique thing to a diocese specifically. You've been on Father Mitch Paqua's EWTN show and several other shows talking about this. And when people call in, they say. How do we start something like that in our diocese? Correct. Yeah, there's a lot of traction looking at is there a unique or distinct way in which we can provide kind of robust intellectual formation for the laity? You know, the the older university model is is still obviously very important, uh, but you have dioceses and other institutions looking at ways in which we can provide this type of formation outside, if you will, of the current um, academic model. And so that's what the Institute attempts to do, right? We provide kind of robust intellectual, spiritual, artistic formation uh, for people of the diocese. Um, and we do so very intentionally in a very integrated way, right? We understand that if we want Christ to reside in our intellects, if we want Christ to animate and motivate our wills, he must first reside in our imaginations. And so a lot of what we do is cultural, right? We try to form the imaginations of how to live a really interesting, wonderful, integrated Catholic life. And again, that's not, that's not just simply that is a thing that's reserved for Sundays or for life in the pew, but every element of our life needs to be animated by our Catholic faith. But once again, it's been such a long time since the culture has really incorporated these elements into daily living, we've kind of forgotten that. And so we want to introduce people to these more ancient traditions, which are very humane and very life-giving. Yeah, and one of the things that we always 
do at the Alcorn Institute. We've partnered up with the Alcorn Institute at uh, with St. Michael Catholic Radio, which is uh, the product of the Catholic Man Show. Uh, but one thing we always make sure to do is have good food and good drink to facilitate good conversation. Yeah, and again, that's something that we we strive to do at, with the Institute. All of our kind of educational activities are supported by and augmented with good food, good drink. Um, so we always have those kind of social components, which are the prerequisite, really, for any kind of meaningful intellectual conversation, right? Because we are these unique creatures in the cosmos. We are body and soul. Um, and so we need to nourish the body as well as nourish the soul. So we always try to have these elements uh, accompanying our intellectual activity. Well, and today is, is no exception. So we uh, just opened up uh, Port Charlotte, uh, it is a single malt, 10-year uh, Isla, Isla whiskey. It's heavily peated. Dave and I have had this on the show quite a while ago, so we're revisiting this. But it is a good, strong, peated scotch. So if you're looking for one as the uh, weather is changing, if we're getting uh, into the cooler months, thank, thanks be to God. Yes. Um, and uh, this one's just a good one that, uh, like when you have the fire going and you're all gathered around and you're outside smoking a pipe this one is a good one to accompany yeah i've not had this so i'm looking forward to trying it all right thank you so cheers cheers so uh like i said if if you're interested in the peated scotches the the lagavulins the lafroigs the ardbegs of the world uh port charlotte is a is a good one to go for as well because it's also not one that's as well known as the lagavulins or the lafroigs mm-hmm. um, it's on the nose it's very you can smell the alcohol yeah it's yeah. It, it is it is a very strong um let me see here. Yeah, it's fifty. It's fifty ABV, which is uh, higher than normal. Um, typically, you're, you're looking at more of the forty to forty-six percent range in, in most scotches, but this one's at a fifty, almost like it's a, a barrel strength or something. Mm. Very nice. Yes, it's a it's a good sipping one. So uh, it's about seventy-five dollars if you uh, are looking to, to to pick that up somewhere. It's a good one to have coming this winter. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk to talk about, we're going to talk about um, something we haven't done. We haven't talked about this uh, this man before, but Romero Guardini uh, is is in one of his letters that he wrote. But before we do, we just talk, spoke about the Alcorn Institute. You just recently wrote something for the Alcorn Institute on something that will kind of bleed into our topic this evening, um, specifically on tradition, on agriculture, mm-hmm. on uh, the liturgical season. Um, I'll let you kind of go yeah, from there. This is something that I've been pondering and thinking about for some time now. It's just the the importance of rural life, the merits of living a simple kind of peasant Catholic existence. What are the benefits of doing it? I mean, it's obviously something that is not practice, but I think there's the church has kind of always upheld the importance of rural living and hard labor, mm-hmm. um, you know, working by the sweat of one's brow with soil under your nails. And uh, what are the benefits of that? Um, and so I kind of teased that out a little bit in the article that I wrote. It's a very short reflection on the merits of rural living. Um, and ultimately, I think the benefits, or one of the benefits of the many, would be that it allows us to understand the rich imagery that's present, omnipresent, really, throughout the entirety of sacred scripture. 
Um, as I mentioned in the article, the entire narrative of salvation history is bookended by this agrarian mo- motif. Right? You have Adam, the first tiller of the soil, and the, the terrible job that he did in doing that. And it culminates in the book of Revelation where Christ, the new Adam, the new tiller of the soil, brings forth an abundant harvest, right? So this whole kind of understanding, and ultimately you see this even in in John 15, which didn't make reference, but God is the farmer, right? In the the translations that we often read in Mass, the the New American, it talks about God as the the vine dresser. Mm. But a better, more accurate translation is a farmer, um, so this understanding of of this kind of agrarian motifs and imagery is permeates all of it, and a lot of times because our, our imaginations haven't been formed to think and to understand the the general natural principles of farming and rural life, we, those those imageries of of sheep and sheepfolds, of vines and vine dressers, of farming is kind of lost to us. So there's an importance just from understanding sacred scripture. And even the great theologians and poets and artists and, and thinkers of the past often use, you know, kind of these same motifs in their dissemination of the Catholic intellectual tra- tradition. Uh, even think of um, De Sales, right? He often uses reference of bees um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to explain the spiritual life. So uh, my point is it's, it's, it permeates everything that's Catholic. The... Biblical interpretation, the kind of spiritual and intellectual life of the church throughout history. Um, we also see it in the earmarking of various seasons with Ember Days, which you just celebrated. So it's everywhere, and yet it's kind of lost. And I'm kind of, the whole musing is really a lamentation of sorts that we've lost this because we've moved ourselves away from the field, away from the forest. And we need to really return to some degree in order to understand in a more sensible way what these images, what these analogies, what these motifs really mean. Yeah, and what they're trying to convey. Exactly. Right? And, so, and so the further we divorce ourselves from, from this reality, the harder it's going to be to use our imaginations to understand what Christ is trying to tell us through Scripture uh, and, and, and what he's trying to bring to our attention. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that's a, a really great segue, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> into, right. Into the letter that we want to discuss, right? So uh, on the other side of the break, we're gonna we're gonna pick up on this, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of just read through it and try to understand what Gordini is trying to say, what he's wanting to what convey to us, and then at the end we'll try to give our our thoughts and and see if he's if he's right. It sounds like a plan. Okay. I'm here with Dr. Malosh. He's the president of the Alquin Institute. Go check out alquininstitute.org. It'll be a link in our show notes. Uh, we'll be right back. For the last 35 years, Select International Tours has been in the business of helping people plan and enjoy their pilgrim trips. That's why here at the Catholic Command Show, we only use Select International Tours. Go to selectinternationaltours.com slash Show and sign up for our email list so you know when we will be taking our next pilgrimage. We're already going to Ireland. We're planning our next trip right now. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a trip of a lifetime. Go to selectinternationaltours.com slash Show.
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Here with a special guest, Dr. Richard Malosh from the Alcorn Institute. We're going to talk about a, a an essay. Is an uh, I guess it's a letter, not an essay, but it's a letter. It's from uh, a letter from Lake Cuomo, a Como, not Cuomo. That's a totally different. It's a person, not a place. Uh, letters, letters from Lake Como. It, it it's written in 1924 for, by Romero Gordini. Now Gordini is a nice German name, right? No, <laughs> you see, he's from he's from Italy, but he he's, he lived basically in Germany his whole life. Correct. Um, he he's writing this even before the the technology of that really propels World War II, um, and he he's he was a teacher. He was uh, he didn't actually start an institution, but he was a head professor of philosophy at, at several uh, big schools, mm-hmm. uh, and was a a, a big um, influence on Joseph Ratzinger, which would be Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth, mm-hmm. uh, as well as many others, uh, even Pope, Pope Francis. Pope is, Francis, correct? Yeah, uh, had, a good friend of yours, of course, uh, Joseph Pieper, as well. That's was right. Very influential to him and his thought and his writing. Obviously, a huge impact on the on the Cardinals um, of Vatican II. The Cardinal Father, it's a Vatican II, very influential. Um, he had some really pivotal texts that informed and influenced uh, the Second Vatican Council as well, specifically mm-hmm. in regards to liturgy. He was actually uh, asked to be a cardinal and declined, uh, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But yeah, so he had a, a whole lot of influence. He wrote the spirit of the liturgy. He wrote, uh, His probably most famous text would be The, Lo- uh, the Lord, would Correct, be my yeah. guess. Uh, but he had... I, I, 75 books, I believe, if I, if I remember oh, wow. correctly. So uh, he was a prolific author. Um, but this one is uh, just a a letter you can – I would encourage everybody to read this maybe just outside on the back porch as the sun is setting. Maybe you have a nice drink in your hand or out in, out in the in the fields, in the wilderness. If you have you know somewhere you can, you can get away from, from every all the noise of the city and just kind of sit down and, and read this. Maybe we'll, we'll kind of go through it and then – uh, provide maybe some commentary as we go. Yeah, and this is, I mean, I just stumbled across this. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a shame that it's been so so late in my academic kind of formation that I came across this um, letter. Of course, I'm familiar with Cordini and his work. And, you know, as I kind of became more and more interested in this kind of poetic mode and the kind of renaissance of agrarian life that's occurring now, it's referenced quite often, but I've never had the leisure or the time to kind of go back and read it. And I just recently came across it, and I was, I was stunned by it. Mm. Um, it's very simple, but it moved me greatly. And so I've been sharing it with everyone. Yes. You need to read this. This is a profound work in its simplicity. But um, I've been wrestling with this kind of question of late, namely, you know, you've you had this sense of, I don't know if you get this, I think a lot of us get this sense as, as moderns, of just this uneasiness in the world, mm. right? There's yeah. a, there's a, with all the comforts that we enjoy, I feel, and I'm sure this is true of, of many men out there, we just, we feel like our nature has been dulled, right? We're not as sharp <laughs> as we uh, ought to be. Yeah. And so I've been wrestling with this, like what is the cause of it? What is, what is, what is it unique about modernity, post-modernity, the technological age, that has caused this feeling of unease, of this dullness, that we're not as sharp, our human nature, especially as men, is not as sharp as it ought to be. Mm-hmm. And so I've been looking at trying to find and discern within the documents of Holy Mother Church or ecclesial 
pronouncements, but also in great thinkers. Uh, you know, a nice, clean, phys- uh, philosophical, theological articulation of the cause of this uneasiness. It's been hard to, to locate. And Guardini here, I think, gets very, very close. I'm just interested in your thoughts on this topic as well, because, again, I've been, I've been pondering this for, for some time now. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the benefits of working for the diocese is that I get a chance to talk to you and Dr. Henderson, who's also part of the Institute, and um, Eli, who, who's uh, your research assistant, uh, Deacon Garlic, who's been on the show several times, you guys are all uh, of like minds, and you guys all have special uh, specialties in, in, in your thoughts, and we're able to bounce ideas and thoughts and, and, and works of the church uh, uh, around, and um, it's, it's a huge blessing to me. So yeah, let, let's do it. Let's get into it. Good. So again, this is Cordini, Letters from Lake Como, uh, 1924. This is a letter that he's penning to his friend, and he begins, My dear friend, the first impression remains. It grows even deeper. The people are delighted by the progress. Admittedly, it brings them work and bread. Many who otherwise would not have to immigrate stay in the country. Much indulgence, much disadvantage in the basic comforts and needs of life is disappearing. Car after car drives along the lake. Factory after factory pops up. Everything is wired with electricity. Everything is set up. And works. As I explained to someone what this means for one who comes from the north, he understood it very well. But he took the destruction as a necessity. It is simply so. Indeed, he ultimately got mad. Quote, our land must remain poor and our people must immigrate so that your romantic needs can here be met. End quote. I must admit that he is right. Yeah, so I mean that right there, I think gets to the heart of even the critique. Uh, you know, he's address- he's almost playing the, the the Aquinas of steel man- manning. You know, the the critique at first, yes. and then going into uh, his argument. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's he's obvious that this technological progress, right? This kind of industrialization of this beautiful, gorgeous lake, um, is seen as delightful. This is the language that he's using, right? And it brings work and bread, as he says. Um, people are able to stay. They're not, they don't have to move out of this country because of all this technological advancement. And again, he admits that you know these discomforts of life are disappearing. So it seems like everything is getting better as a consequence of the advancement of culture, right? This technological advancement of culture is a good. And then obviously people around there are saying, this is wonderful, this is great. And yet you come around here and lament the fact that this transformation is occurring right yeah yeah that's exactly right and he says yeah i must admit that he is right yeah Yeah. right he admits that this this growth in in culture this technological advancement um is happening and it appears to be in a good but nonetheless, he's going to critique it anyways. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I mean that takes some guts, right? You have you have people who are like the hundred years ago, we're star fifty years ago, we're starving, we're having to move, having to migrate, having to try to figure out how do we make our make something of ourselves. And you have all this discomfort as a consequence of the lack of technology, mm-hmm. right? And you also, now we have these the ease of life. This is obviously making things more efficient, uh, making our lives easier. 
uh, more enjoyable, as he says, more delightful. And yet he's going to say this is still something to be concerned about. Yeah. So what does he say? He continues. Yet what is advancing is nonetheless horrible. (laughs) (laughs) All of these good things, the delight, the, the work, the bread, the food, right? All these bodily goods that we now have as a consequence of this technological advancement, are we able to stay in place, enjoy this this beauty? Uh, all the discomforts, as he says, are disappearing, but nonetheless, it's horrid. It's awful that this is occurring. Then he continues, am I boring you? You know if someone has a deeply personal question on his heart and suddenly sees it before him in objective historical form, he is not quickly done with the matter. The problem of culture is here becoming ever clearer to me. You see... There is a nature, entirely untouched, even holy nature in the special sense of the word. word. To this we have, from the outside, no relation. Carl Schmidt, in his brilliant book on Roman Catholicism, I read it on the trip down, saw correctly. The desire for an entirely untouched nature is itself already a result of culture, springing from the excess of an artificial existence. Nature first starts really to concern us when it begins to be inhibited, when culture begins within it. It then strides forwards. Piece by piece, nature is shaped. Man creates his own world within it, formed according to his thoughts, ruled not by natural drives, but by set goals serving spiritual beings, a world created as an environment that is based upon him, interwoven by him. Yeah, what took me uh, by this, this, this second paragraph after he kind of, you know, paints the picture of what is the current situation at this beautiful lake, he then begins to explain the very essence and nature of culture. And the very fact, he says, the desire for an earthly untouched nature is itself already a result of culture springing from the excess of an artificial existence. Right, so hmm. uh, there's this artificiality. And this is what I was kind of hinting at at the very beginning, right? There's this artificiality that we're sensing, and the very fact that we can sense this artificiality makes us want to revert back to a more real or natural way of existence. Yeah, one of the things he said, he actually um, capitalizes nature. It's even holy nature in a sense, in a special sense of the word. Why do you, why why do you think he he makes that emphasis? It's quote it. It has quotations around it, and he capitalizes nature. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and of course, he he references this work uh, by this other uh, writer, Carl Schmidt. But I think here he's just referencing that he's going to later on compare nature, uh, whatever that is going to be. He hasn't really articulated it, but with what is uniquely man's culture so there's going to be this contrast between nature and man's culture okay so we're here with dr richard malosh from the alcorn institute of catholic culture from the diocese of tulsa in eastern oklahoma uh we're gonna keep keep talking about this on the other side of the break we'll be right back More than 60,000 men from around the world have journeyed through Exodus 90 together with their brothers. Priests, bishops, singled men, married men, Catholics, non-Catholics alike. 
One of the things we love receiving are emails from guys who signed up to do Exodus 90 through the Catholic Command Show and let us know how much freedom they've experienced once they go through the program. And it makes sense, right? Here's how it works. And these are the things that we talk about all the time on the Catholic Man Show, which is why we love promoting Exodus 90. They have three pillars, the, a pillar of prayer, a pillar of asceticism, and a, a pillar of fraternity. And through those three pillars, they help men grow closer to Christ, to their spouse, to their children, and to their friends, closer to that man that God has called them to be. So go check out Exodus 90. They have Exodus 90 Lent as well. It's exodus90.com slash TCMS for the Catholic Man Show. TCMS. Thank you to Exodus 90 for being a sponsor of the Catholic Man Show. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. If you had a chance to pick up our book from Ascension Press, go check that out. You can go to ascensionpress.com. Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place. If you have uh, purchased it, uh, thank you. And also give us a review if you could. We're trying our best to uh, uh, bring the reviews up so that way it helps bring it to other people. We have had several dioceses pick it up as a marriage prep uh, book is that yeah. right? Yeah, so that way they well, can uh, u- utilize that as a, a kind of a blueprint of how to build the domestic church. Um, so anyway, go check that out. You can, you can find it at essentialpress.com. Living beyond Sunday, making your home a holy place. Uh, we're here with Dr. Richard Malosh from the Alcorn Institute. We're, we're reading through this uh, letter from uh, Romero, Romero Gordini and uh, talking about nature and understanding what w- the relationship with culture. Uh, I'll let, you, I'll let you pick up where, where we were at the end of the break. Yeah, so here I think, um, again, just to remind everyone listening that, you know, this is really the first time we've discussed this. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go through it line by line, paragraph by paragraph, trying to unpack what Gordini is, is informing us about in regards to the relationship between modern society, culture, and ultimately, as we'll see at the very end, how modernity as a consequence of technological advancements is barbaric mm-hmm. um, is the language that he uses. Yeah. Uh, but here, after he kind of explains the, the, the particular situation that we find ourselves in or that he finds himself in, he's now going to make this distinction between nature and culture. And in the last paragraph that we read, he talks about how man creates culture, right? Um, within nature, right? Man creates his own world within it, within nature. But it's formed, as he says, according to his own thoughts. And it's ruled not by natural desires, but by set goals serving spiritual beings. So you have nature and culture kind of erupts out of it and drives upward, right? Uh, And is formed according to his own spiritual thoughts, his own spiritual ambitions, uh, but nonetheless, nature is the foundation, the principle by which culture is formed, as he says. Yeah, you can almost see the etymology of the word culture come out into play. I don't remember what the word is called, but whenever something comes out from the word, like it's it's cultivating up. You're you're culting the soil. You're tilling the soil. You're 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 bringing that up to uh, to the earth to to reality. Yeah, you're creating something new. Right. And he continues. Let's just let's, yeah, let's yeah. continue with the. Uh, with this thought, he begins then, 
How does this human world stand relative to the world of nature? It distances, it distances itself inevitably from it. It rises up the natural things and relationships into another sphere, the sphere of thought out, the willed, the regulated, the created, always something far from nature, the sphere of the culture, of the cultural. Man lives in this world of culture. In the first nature, that order in which the animals live, man cannot be. To be human is to be interwoven by spirit and mind. But the spirit can only create when it has taken from nature its, I would say, I would like to say its penetrating reality. The spirit mm. can therefore only create when the sphere of the natural real is in some measure loosened up called into question, diluted through the sphere of the conscience and the unreal ideal. I raise myself the objection. Spirit is indeed reality and must be capable of grasping unweakened nature reality. All the same, all spiritual creation seems to be, seems to presuppose a sort of asceticism, a kind of breaking up, of loosening, unrealizing of nature. Only then can man set up his work. So again, I think here he's making this dichotomy between as he, what he calls the natural real versus the unreal ideal. So there's contrast between nature and culture. Um, and culture is this kind of, as he, as he mentions this, this realm of, um, what's the language to use? Thought out, the willed, the regulated, the created. And so culture in itself, by its very essence, is distancing, distancing itself from nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and then he brings in a very interesting point about asceticism, right? A, a kind of breaking up, loosening, unrealizing of nature. Only then can man set up his work. Yeah. So culture, there's always going to be a distancing from, from the natural world. Mm-hmm. Right, this is what culture is. But then he, but he talks about how um, it can only form culture. Man can only form culture by somehow preserving what he calls the penetrating reality of nature. So there's whatever that is. He doesn't specify exactly what that is, but there's something in nature itself which needs to be taken up and then used in new ways, which begins to form culture. Mm-hmm. Right, this penetrating reality, this deep down things of nature that can be manipulated and used to create new things and uh, and human culture, right? But there's this tension, as you see, right, between nature, the natural real, and culture, which is the unreal ideal. Okay. Yeah. So culture, uh, yeah. So he's using culture almost as like a virtue, almost right. So it's that medium because it could be used a swing, swing in. in Either way, a pendulum is swinging either way, right? Like where it's, it's of excess, which would be what he'll talk about here in a little bit. But then it could be almost nothing, which would be just the natural world. Yeah, but he also – I don't know if there's a, there's a defect there because he speaks about how man can never go back into the world of nature. Mm. Right, that is something – because we are this unique creature of, of body and spirit. We're not just an animal. Right, That world right. of nature is the realm in which animals – move and have their being but we as humans as intelligent creatures take that 
as he mentions, what's the language he used? That penetrating reality, and then we manipulate it and we create new things in order for us to live. And that creating of new things, which is a volitional act, a thought-out act, is then begins to create culture. Mm-hmm. But as he says, at some point, and this is you know the crux of his argument, as we'll see in a moment, is that you know how f- how far can we go, right? What is the the gap between nature and the creation of new things, in which at some point that tie is severed, right? It's completely divorced, where it's no longer nature's no longer around. Yeah, culture can become almost an anti-culture. At right. some point, the, the further you distance yourself, as you as he says, from this penetrating reality of the natural world, right. of okay. the natural real. So he continues, thus, culture appears from the very outset to have something alien to nature about it, something unreal, something artificial. So here I think he's saying that culture in itself, there's, there's a, by necessity, is something artificial, but it's not necessarily a bad thing um, unless it becomes so abstracted from the real, from nature, that it becomes a perversion. And he continues, that increases until a certain limit is reached, a maximum mass of spirit and mind saturated culture. It is estranged from nature as belongs by essence to the relationship, but it is nonetheless so close to her so elastically bound to her that this culture remains, quote-unquote, natural, and the natural saps can still course through it. Right, so here I think he's describing what a good culture looks like, what, a, what a, a, a culture in which man can flourish. Namely, it's not so divorced from these penetrating reality of nature um, that it's no longer connected to the natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's inter- okay. So maybe it's just my lack of understanding here. But when he when he talks about that, the culture appears from the very outset be something alien from nature. It would that even be the case in the Garden of Eden, like before the fall, or is this is this something that is because of the fall that it is now uh, contrary or from the very beginning alien or? or not unique to nature. Well, it would seem that for Gordini, what he's emphasizing is that culture, human culture, it's, it necess- necessarily springs from the natural world. Right. Right. We use the things of nature kind of to, to build a culture um, that we can move and have our being and flourish within. Um, and that actual movement from from nature to a more cultural, thought-willed mode of existence is by its very essence artificial. It is, in a certain sense, distancing ourselves from the natural world, which is a good. That's the that's the realm in which we need to move and have our being because we are, again, this kind of unique, hylomorphic being. Okay, I understand. Yeah, and it's the hierarchy of, of uh, being, so to speak, is the reason why it is a you know, artificial quote unquote thing, right? Animals can't, can't do this, right? So this is a natural thing within the natural world Mm -hmm. because we are a body soul composite. This becomes a, a uh, artificial or an alien thing towards nature because of, 
of who we are. Yeah, but that artificiality is not a bad thing, right? This right. is what God has willed for us, that we use our intellects and our wills, our spiritual faculties, to manipulate, if you will, these natural realities to form a, a, a world, a culture, in which matter and spirit are united in this kind of beautiful relationship. Um, but nonetheless, but nonetheless, you know, we are still in this world and bound to exist in culture, but somehow removed from nature. Okay, so we're, we're going to pick this up, this thought up right on the other side of the break. Uh, you're listening to The Catholic Man Show. We'll be right back. Since the earliest centuries, Catholics have been called to sanctify the home by making it a little church. Family meals, shared gathering spaces, and the most mundane tasks, all of these are to be taken up into the higher dimension and bathed in prayer. But in the modern world, it is easy to lose sight of this fact and shape our homes around the latest consumer trends. In Living Beyond Sunday, the Niles and Minahan families take the mystery and guesswork out of the domestic church, showing you how to sanctify your home simply, wisely, and practically. Every Catholic family should own a copy of this book. That endorsement is from Sam Guzman, the Catholic gentleman. Go check out our new book that we have out by Ascension Press, ascensionpress.com, Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place. Welcome back to the Catholic Command Show. Uh, talking with Dr. Richard Milosh from the Alcorn Institute. Go check them out, alcorninstitute.org. They have a stunning website, uh, alcorninstitute.org. Uh, talking about this letter from uh, uh, Lake Como with uh, uh, Romero Guardini, talking about culture. Um, this is where I think it gets really interesting, right? Uh, yeah, this is, this is where Guardini becomes very poetic right. and very beautiful. So, again, kind of recap where we've been and where we're hopefully to head is that, you know, he kind of explained the current situation that he finds himself in. And then he's been giving us a, a wonderful definition, I think of culture, right? Mm -hmm. We could maybe circle back and kind of critique his definition or, or look at it and see if it's adequate or not. But he seems to making this contrast between nature and culture. Culture then um, requires that man uses nature, the reality itself to kind of form this, this new mode of existence in which man can flourish and have his being. Mm -hmm. He then subsequently for the remaining of the letter kind of gives us multiple examples of culture that is healthy, that is bound. It is estranged from nature, but still nonetheless tethered to nature. Mm -hmm. And then he gives examples in which that tethering is, is broken and man is then no longer cultured, right? You kind of return not to a state of nature, but to a state of barbarism, as we'll say. So he gives three examples. The first example I think is very beautiful. Um, I'll just read it and then we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. He begins, I want to look for an example so that what is said will not remain void. Take a sailboat. Here on Lake Como, they sail along, heavy, fit for great cargo. Yet the mass of wood and canvas and the power of the wind are so perfectly formed that the load is made light. 
When such a boat pulled its path before the wind, my heart laughed. As it laughs when, by a perfect form, something is made light and bright from within. I do not know what the historians might think, but it seemed to be entirely believable when someone told me that the boats were the same as in the time of the Romans. An ancient inheritance of form is here. Can you feel what a wonderful act of culture it is? When man becomes lord over wind and water with a bit of bent and joint wood and some spread out canvas, into my very blood I sense the creation, the primordial work of mankind's creative power. So full of spirit and mind, this perfectly worked through movement by which man masters nature. So here again, I think he's given a wonderful example of what authentic culture is, right? Man is not completely divorced from nature, but nonetheless, he's utilizing, as he says, this kind of primordial or this penetrating reality of nature and builds from it something that would otherwise not be present, but in which man can flourish. But he's not completely divorced from it. Right. Which he talks about right after when it does, and it almost breaks his heart. Yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> continues. Let's move right there. Certainly, he already paid... For this with a distance, right? Uh, what he's referring to here, the boat, right? Man is distancing himself from, from the water, from the wind. Mankind is no longer so immersed in the realm of wind and water as are the birds and the fishes, right? This Dionysian handing over of oneself is already undone. Okay, well, so can you tell me what that means? Like, what is that word? The Dionysian handing over of oneself is already undone. What does that mean? Yeah, so... Dionysius, of course, in ancient Greek culture, right? He was a god. Um, and all through the ancient literature, you have um, Dionysius pitted against Apollo, right? Dionysius is this um, individual who is chaotic, who is just completely wild, one with nature versus Apollo, which is um, all legalistic, rule-based, order-based. And so here... He's lamenting the fact that man, by the very fact that he's creating this culture, namely this boat, he's distancing himself from the wild man, right? From the Dionysian man. To more of an ordered. Exactly. Which, again, he's he, there's a loss there, right? He's right. no longer natural, purely, but nonetheless, it's still proper for him to do so as he continues. Okay. I once read how the people of some fisher folk in the South Sea rising on a bare board, threw themselves into the surf simply for fun, for pleasure, right? I think he's thinking about the Polynesian people, right, who are surfers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're more Dionysian, right? They're more attuned to this kind of natural mode of living. And man, by putting himself on a boat, is dis distancing himself from that reality. What an infinite rapture of connection to nature must come over such a person, right? This is the appeal of surfing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As if he were a water creature or a piece of wave. And anybody who's ever body surfed or or anything like that can relate to this, right? When you just become one with it, where you're just headed, like you're flowing with nature, with, with that water. Yeah. Uh, Peter Kreef talks about this. He's written several books on philosophy of surfing and how like just being uh, one with nature, how that brings out who man truly is. Yes. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so... But by, but, by, but by man distancing himself by creating a boat that actually floats on top of the water, he's somehow distancing himself from this more primitive or primordial man. 
compared to him, the perfected sailboat here is already consummate sobriety. Right? Mm. He's kind of losing that, that whimsical nature of the surfer. Man has already distanced himself from nature. He has renounced it. The threads are cut. He has overcome. The relation to nature has grown cooler, more alien. Only so, only so could culture, the work of the spirit, be created. Right. So by the very fact that man has to use his intellect, like the spirited part of himself, to build a boat, he is distancing himself from nature. There is a loss there. But he continues. Yet it is not true... Do you not even sense how natural the work remains? The canvas of a boat in its proportions remains in deep consonance with the power of the wind and the waves and the living measure of man. And he rules the boat, remains closely bound with wind and wave. He stands, I love this phrase, breast to breast against their power. Eye and hand and the entire body are tense. Real culture Elevation over nature, yet still in a decisive way, so close to nature. Mankind remains within, entirely entirely alive, a spiritually ensouled body. He overcomes nature by the strength of the spirit, but he himself remains natural. Hmm. Beautiful. So here he's saying this is this is the articulation of real culture, right? And he's going to pit this against. In the next paragraph, this abhorrent artificial culture, <laughs> as <laughs> okay. I'll say. Okay. Yeah, but you can see the sense that where he's not lamenting the fact that we're building boats, but nonetheless that these, this boat building is still tethered to, the, to nature. Yeah. Why? Because he, he requires wind. It requires wave, right? He's using, if you will, that um, penetrating reality of nature to build these things and he's still tethered to nature. And this is an example of real culture, at least according to Guardini. Mm-hmm. Let's continue. And, yeah. then, and then this is where he's going to com- yeah. compare real culture to this artificial. artificial culture. Quote, Yet allow the distance from nature to grow. It pained my heart as I was in one of these boats, these noble creations, and suddenly saw a gas motor built in. The thing stuck out across the waves with a clattering, upright mast, all naked without a sail, like a ghost of its very self. Allow the distance to go still further. Out of the sailboat comes the steamboat, and then the great ocean liner. Culture indeed, the illustrious work of technology. Yet such a colossus moves through the sea, insensible for wind and weather, It is so immense that nature no longer has any power over it. Within it, man no longer senses nature. The people eat and sleep and dance. They live as if the houses, as if the houses and on their streets of some great city. So this is this sense of artificial culture. Why? Because in the steamboat, as he says, or in the ocean liner, what has happened? There's been this, the severing of man from the natural world. We're not. No, we're no longer like working with nature to achieve accomplishments, but we're we're just dominating nature and and voiding all of its good to achieve our end. That's right. Yes. Um, okay. And this for Gordini is a great problem. 
And he continues, do you sense how something decisive has been lost? Do you? Right. <laughs> how here something is not merely incrementally advanced, something made bigger, but rather that some wavering border has been crossed. A border that one cannot precisely indicate. A border that one senses once it has been long crossed. Beyond this border, the living nearness to nature has been lost. Hmm. So again, I think this is, you know, as we've been contemplating this and I've been thinking about this, you know, it's hard to determine when exactly uh, man has been severed from the real, from nature, right? It's, it's, it's very difficult. I'm glad that he, st- that he stated this because it is hard to determine when that line has been crossed. Yeah. And, and in, in this, in, the modern world, when we're we're so utilitarian, right, and we're so uh, we're so worried about the outcomes, so to speak. Just how do we get to the end goal the fastest? Mm-hmm. It, it it's just uh, harsh to our ears and to our understanding of, of like what does he really mean here? So I'll, I'll, if you're listening on the radio right now, we are out of time. But I'm gonna, I want to push back. We're gonna continue talking about this, but I want to push back a little bit because my initial reaction was I don't think he's right. But the more I've kind of thought about it. Uh, Maybe I'm, I'm coming around. So, uh, thanks so much for joining joining us. Check out our podcast, and we can continue. The, we'll continue this conversation. Uh, you can check out over 300 more episodes that we've done over the course of six years. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Okay, so he, so he's, he's basically so. Uh, uh, just a little bit further down, and we'll, we'll we'll put this in the show notes so everybody can read this for themselves. And maybe this would be a good if you're starting a men's group or you have a men's group that you're meeting with on a regular basis. This would be good to read and reflect and and, and discuss. Yeah, there's uh, a lot to tease out, right? So, and there's no way we can do this uh, all on this show. So, um, make sure to go read this, if, especially if you're even if you're opposed to this idea and, and, and think that he's wrong. I think it's still good to to read this. So. It, as he continues on in, in that um, paragraph that we're reading, he says, In the sailboat, alongside the whole spiritual, intellectual character of the situation, humanity had a natural existence. He dwelt in this natural culture. And then he compares it. In the modern steamship, he stands in an entirely artificial situation. Nature is turned off as as much as possible. It does not yet uh, say enough. Nature measure, uh, measured by elastic and living human limit it dis- is decisively shut down so this is kind of like what i was saying i think right so he he's not opposed to technology when in it, it works in relationship to nature when it's as as he says beautifully breast on breast like when it's working in conjunction with i think where he he he, he no longer uh, appreciates is when it when man completely dominates or um i don't know is is the it, it becomes the god so to speak of nature and just dominates at his will yes yeah i think the key here to understanding when that line has been crossed right when good healthy culture distances itself so far from nature that it becomes problematic or artificial or toxic um, he gives this one line here. He says, yet still, let me back up. Let me mm-hmm. read the entire sentence. Mm-hmm. Every primordial phenomenon of human culture, which we have designated by boat and ship, constructs of the human spirit, yet entirely inserted within nature, right? It's it's still tethered to 
to nature, to natural culture, and they continue, yet still always created through the living movement and activity of the entire person. Right? So when man begins to construct things from these primordial natural elements, which constitutes a culture, this, this construction, this, this creation needs to involve the movement and activity of the entire human person. Right, his okay. will and his intellect needs to be involved in the creation of things that that then comprises of human culture. So when the entire person is no longer a part of the creation of things, that is when the line is broken. That is when we become disconnected with nature and begin to form a culture which is problematic. And think about think about this, right? I mean, if this is true, if this is the principle which then which, which demarcates a natural culture from an artificial culture, namely the work of the entirety of a human person, this is the entire modern structure in which we live, right? Everything is constructed not by a tradesman who builds things from the beginning to the end, using his intellect, know, knowing the, the final cause of it, mm-hmm. but rather all you have are these cogs who are developing various parts of things which are then put together. Mm-hmm. Right? So almost all, it would seem, all of modernity, all of modern culture would be toxic because <laughs> there are no longer, the culture is no longer constructed or built by individuals, by individual persons. Um, who know the formal and final cause of the thing. Which is uh, amazing, the, the incredible foresight that he has uh, here in, in 1924 to be talking about this. I couldn't imagine what he would be saying in, in, in today's world. I mean, that, that yeah. So, uh, I, so I agree. I, gr- I agree with this premise. I think, again, so if I was wanting to r- romanticize this idea of, of this catholic culture where we are all dependent upon one another where i needed you to you know have sheep on your land so that way i could have have the wool and you needed me to have the dairy cow so you could have milk and we enter you know we have this interchange and this this society where we were all we all had a craft and we all had a trade and we all depended upon each other I i think that's a beautiful thought i think that's a beautiful idea and a way of living but we're so far from that idea I don't even know if we can go back to that. I, like, I'm not sure you can organically or naturally go back to that without making it almost like forcing it. Do you agree or do you disagree with that? Well, if Gordini's principles are correct, and again, I think his principle is, is relatively simple, that a culture becomes toxic, coercive, uh, problematic, if the culture is then is constructed by no longer persons, but by cogs. Right. Right. Um, I don't know how difficult it would be. I mean, you told me just before the show, you were sitting down and you showed me this um, beautiful pipe that you purchased right. over in Ireland. And that pipe is beautiful and functional and works and smokes well. Principally because it's not done by a machine. Right. 
but rather there's an artisan, there's a craftsman who is applying his spirit, his spiritual faculties, his intellect and will, and constructing it for you. Mm-hmm. And we know this with any good product, right? Things that we really truly enjoy and are beautiful, where you have the the union of both function and form. These things are the things that bring us most pleasure. Uh, the the other things that last, whether you're talking about you know products that you're using in the kitchen or that you're populating your living room with, these things are real mm-hmm. because they have been crafted by an individual from start to finish, or as much as possible from start to finish. Right. But the things that are that are very malleable, that break often, right? Cheap. <laughs> that are cheap. Um, these things are not a product of a true culture. Yeah, and almost a part of you knows that when you buy something cheap like that or something that's made overseas or something, you, you know that this is a utilitarian purpose, right? You know, like, I just want to get maybe one use out of it and then maybe it breaks and I'll be done. That's right. Um, but when you want to spend money on something that is good, something that you know you will use, something that you will maybe even pass down to your children, mm-hmm. that's when you go to the craftsman. That's when you go to a tanner. That's when you go to a, a, a carpenter. That's when you go to somebody who forges steel, you know, a blacksmith. You know, mm-hmm. that's when you go to these people. Yeah. And I don't think it's, I mean, we see this kind of revival, if you will, of locally sourced goods. Uh, by particular individuals, right? I think there's a movement in our culture to realize this. Um, they wouldn't maybe point to Gordini as the source of why right. they're doing the things that they're doing, but ultimately they understand that this is a better culture when the products of the of the world are constructed by persons, as Gordini says, right? That that are are entirely. Where's the quote that I'm looking at? Yeah, that, that they involve the living movement and activity of the entire person. Okay, so I could see somebody listening right now and be like, yeah, I'm in. I'm bought in on this idea. I think this is a good idea. I think this is the way we were actually meant to live. However, uh, I know what a backhoe, I, I know what a tractor does. And he even uses, as he continues, he gives more examples in this letter, yeah, right? he gives and, great examples. He gives a yeah. number of examples. He talks about the hearth. He talks about the plow, as you're about right. to talk about. And then ultimately he concludes with this wonderful and beautiful analogy of, of light, natural light versus artificial light. Right, yeah. But and I could see them reading this and saying, like, yeah, I agree. Uh, the plow would be nice, right? There's a, a, a satisfaction in the man who is uh, plowing his own field. You, you, you put your head down at the end of the day on your pillow and you say, like, I have done something, and you feel good about it, Right. But I also know the feeling of, hey, something that doesn't take, you know, isn't taking me seven years to do, I can do in one day and I can then now use my backhoe and, and build a huge swimming pool in my backyard that would cultivate uh, time and, and memories with my family that I would not be able to have. Although I could spend seven years trying to build a swimming pool with uh, hand tools and being, you know, one with in accord with with re- this natural reality or i could use this backhoe and in five days have a swimming pool in my backyard where i am now making memories and 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 building quote-unquote culture within my family what would you say to that i would say i think i would echo what gordini's saying i must admit 
you are right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. There is an efficiency to modern technology. And these are, these are goods, right? There's the delight. We have, we can work more efficiently, right? We have better food or well, I wouldn't say better food, but. No, he actually even talks about in here how food is just nothing but artificial. Yeah. But there's an abundance of food now, right? right? As a consequence of modern technology. Um, yeah. All the discomforts of a more primitive mode of existence are no longer a reality, right? So there's a certain delight and joy as a consequence of being removed artificially from from reality, from nature. But nonetheless, as he says, this would be horrid, right? It's horrible. <laughs> right. I know. And this is where, I, this is where I'm trying to, I, I'm wrestling with, right? This is, this is where I, uh, he's challenging me because in one sense, I, I totally agree. I know that if I go outside and I chop my own wood, I, and my, my sons are helping me stack the wood and we're having quality time together and I'm using the the the, the splitter to, to, to manually split that wood that will end up heating my home, providing light. This is all a good thing, mm-hmm. right? And it's also a time with my, my, my sons. Yeah, this, you know? this would be a perfect example of this culture, right? The, the axe itself, um, according to Guardini's principle, um, which is a real culture, right? You're distancing yourself from reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not a beaver, right? You're, <laughs> you're using your right. your intellect and your will in these tools um, for the good of your family. Uh, but nonetheless, you're still tethered to nature, right? You're still right. feeling the, the axe handle in your hand. You have the sweat on your brow, right? There's wood chips all around, right? You're, you're not working against nature. You're still working in and consonant, like there's a disconsonant with nature. Uh, so these are all the principles of, according to, to Guardini, of real human culture. Mm-hmm. But then, if you ever used a hydraulic splitter before, I have not. I, I have I have not personally, but I have seen it, and it is like butter, right? You're just super you're efficient, super efficient. So then it's like, okay, well, I could use that technology to split my wood faster, so that way I could spend more time with my sons doing other things. And then it's like, well, what other things are you going to be doing? Mm-hmm. Well, I would like to be in nature, hunting, fishing, you know, doing something, camping, hiking, whatever. I don't know. So uh, Dr. Cutterback, who's, who's a friend of, uh, of the Institute's, and um, he, he, made the, he, he told us this story one time. He said uh, he was debating on whether or not to buy a hydraulic splitter. Because he, he cuts his own, he chops all of his own wood. Heats he, his entire house. Yeah, yeah with, and heats his entire house with, with with wood. And he he said he was debate. He was out there with his sons, and he was, it was incredibly hot. He's sitting there splitting the wood. He's exhausted. He's looking at how far he's gotten, and he thought, you know what? It'd be better just have a hydraulic splitter. You know, I, I do this all the time. This is getting you know maybe this isn't the best use of my time. But after further further reflection, he said, no, no, no. It's not just about splitting the wood but it's the the time spent with with my sons it's uh the satisfaction of knowing that this hard work is paying off by heating my home by providing a a light source in my home during the winter time Mm -hmm. that my family needs that my family desires uh and and needs to to flourish within the home and so he 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 said he he wasn't going to do that so he didn't buy it yeah there's also like the theological principle and I haven't thought this through in any great detail. This is not church teaching or anything. But this is perfect for the Catholic mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Just shooting from the hip. But it would seem to me that the 
the work now as a consequence of the fall, which is done by the sweat of the brow with thorns and thistles, is punitive on purpose, right? It's remedial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, to, and to distance oneself from that reality is really, um, I think that's what Gordini is pointing to as well, is that you, you, you're failing to take the medicine that is necessary for the, the um, remedial steps that are necessary for salvation via mm-hmm. God's grace that comes to Christ, his cross, and the church. Um, so the efficiency of modern technology, again, may make for more delightful living, uh, more dis- less discomfort um, for, for warmth and, and, and sufficient bread, but you're, you're losing the discipline that has been described for our own benefit. Okay, I agree with that. I mean, and also, I mean, again, this is the whole deal that man is not, does not feel satisfied by sitting behind a computer for eight hours a day, right? He doesn't, there's nothing satisfactory towards that. Like, we're actually made for hardship. You know, we're actually made, uh, you know, you know, this is why there's a beauty in asceticism, right? We're not stoics, so to speak, but we, we know that there's a redeeming quality to suffering. Yeah. And the more uh, modernity removes these hardships and removes these sufferings. Through tool use, through, technolo- through, technolo- through technological advancement. Right. The, uh, the, the more divorced we become from reality. Yeah. And this is, yeah, his distinction between real culture and artificial culture. Okay, so um, this is all kind of theor- not theoretical, but like this is all kind of uh, philosophical. Somebody who's listening to this right now, they're like, okay, I agree. What do I do? Well, I mean, to turn to the author we're exploring, Guardini, mm-hmm. you know, what would he say that we should do? Right, I mean, he, he talks about all these various examples and the beautiful example of the hearth, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the importance of, of natural lighting in the home versus mm-hmm. artificial lighting. Um, so the more and more I think that we can develop a culture that is tethered to the real, the more we'll have a more fulfilling, a more grace-filled, a more humane way of living. Well, and John Sr. picks up on this, right? This is another person who I think who, who probably read Bordini and, sure. and, 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 and picked up on this. Because, I mean, in, in both of his books, which we've talked about before, and we highly recommend The Death of Christian Culture and then his Positive Project, which is still kind of a negative project, but whatever. But his Restoration of Christian Culture, uh, he talks about, like, what is culture and what, is, like, what does it look like for the Christian culture? Mm-hmm. Right, and ultimately, uh, the Christian culture is the mass, which picks up on, on Peeper, and this picks up on, on uh, festivity, and this picks up on you know what is uh, the highest highest form of leisure and 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 festivity, but it is the mass. It's it's divinely oriented. Correct, and it is liturgia, right? It is work, 
<laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Flesh that out because somebody may maybe not never heard of that before. Like flesh that flesh that thought out. Yeah. Ultimately, the mass is it is the work of God, but we participate in that work. Right. It's not. Again, Joseph Pieper, as you mentioned, is is very keen on this as well. That it's not simply a passive uh, reception, but there's a there's a true active participation. Right to use the language of the Council Fathers. Um, uh, but we need to, to to offer ourselves with the offering of Christ on on the Mass, which is which is again the work that we are called to do. Um, but it's again, if you notice, it's not solely um, artificial, right? It's the sacraments are very much tethered to, as Gordini mentions, as I mentioned quite often, this this penetrating reality of things, right? We use visible signs, and all of the churches formal um, acts of worship. Okay, so uh, men are men are trying to uh, you know build up the Catholic culture. They're trying their best, you know, to to, to cultivate this uh, uh, sainthood within their family, you know, in in in, in this uh, in accord with reality. Sure. Um, maybe give just a couple thoughts of like, here's how to do. Here's here's how to do. It. This is the practicality that that a lot of professors do not like to <laughs> d- talk about. But maybe like, okay, so let, here here's one. Here's an easy one, right? So like, uh, um, start a garden. Uh, start get your hands dirty, right? Even if you, you you don't have to have seven, five, ten, you know, twenty, fifty acres of land, mm-hmm. you know, to 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 do this, right? Use what you have, and you can start off with just you know tilling your own garden, and 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 learning the work that is involved to create your own food. Mm-hmm. This is a work that you can do in in relation with nature. You can use tools to do so, uh, but you can harvest this food that nature provides to understand what re- what what this natural reality is. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to realize that building culture, you have to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes effort, and we are lazy. So you have to realize <laughs> that about yourself. Right. right. Um, That's a real so, thing, yes. Yeah. So you, 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 we can't be adverse to to hard labor, to hard work, uh, specifically, when we're trying to develop a humane culture in our homes, in our parishes, in our communities, we have to be very intentional, and we can't seek efficiency as an end in and of itself. If it's difficult, it's probably worth doing. Whatever that means, um, avoiding the the mechanical wood splitter, right, um, and and picking up axe in its stead. Or whether it's simply, you know, um, removing technology as a form of human entertainment. I mean, that's something that's something very simple, and I would encourage every listener to do right. Avoid these kind of artificial means of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Instead of listening to music, begin to play music with your family, as opposed to listening to audio books. Read mm-hmm. books. Um, all these things are that are quite easy. But again, I think as men, we need to take the hard route, and that is usually the best for ourselves and for our families and for our communities. Uh, the Alcuin Institute's putting on a conference soon. We are. Uh, in, in 2013? In May. Yeah, I forget the exact dates, uh, but it's in, in May, um, and it's going to be a really interesting 
conference. We're excited about it. Um, it's going to be a, a really international conference. We're bringing in some great speakers um, to address the local community here, but we invite everyone from you know across the states to come and join us. It's going to be a fantastic cult, uh, f- a fantastic conference. But we're looking specifically at the relationship between the church and the um, the state. Right? Mm-hmm. What is this relationship? What what historically has been the relationship, and what ought to be the the relationship between these two these two powers? And we have two speakers lined up thus far with more. In the pipeline, who, who are those two speakers? Correct. Yeah, we have Chad Pecknold, who's a wonderful professor at the Catholic University of America. He'll be joining us and speaking, as well as Patrick Deneen, who is a, a political philosopher out of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Our Lady. So you can uh, go check that out at the Institute.org. Dr. Malash, I appreciate uh, your time, and, and I appreciate also uh, just the work you do in, in the diocese. One of the reasons that... W- one of the, the, the joys that I have of working in the diocese is working with the Alcorn Institute. Um, I, I, I really appreciate everything you guys do, and um, thank you for all your good work. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Uh, go check us out. Uh, you can support us by going to patreon.com. Thank you so much. Next week, David will be back. I promise. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side, so raise your glass. Hi, this is Bishop David Condorla of the Diocese of Tulsa in Oklahoma. So let us pray. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come. Before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word incarnate,